Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to do in this audio 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, Paul, having sent Timothy out to Macedonia to figure out what's going to to Thessalonica, to be more precise, having sent Timothy to Thessalonica to see how the Thessalonians were doing, had received Timothy back at Corinth and had received a good report, probably at Corinth, and received a great report about how well the Macedonians were doing. He prayed that they would establish their hearts blameless in holiness. And so now in chapter 4, Paul is going to exhort the Thessalonians to live a life pleasing to God. So we'll call this section a life pleasing to God. We start in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you must walk and please God, as you are doing, do so even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, first of all, let's notice how polite Paul is. He's asking them. He's encouraging them. He does give us some commands in verse 2, but before he does that, he starts out very gently by saying, we ask you, we encourage you to walk and please God. And then he says, and I know you're doing that already. Just want you to you know, up your game a little bit, do a little bit more. He's very gentle with them. He doesn't come, come down on them and saying, you didn't keep God's commands. You're not a good Christian. You know, of course he didn't do that. Now these commands, as I said, are connected with entreaty and encouragement. In verse 1, his commands were not harsh. Here's what Gill says about that. Quote, the apostle does not lay his commands upon them as he might have done and sometimes does but endeavors to work upon them by way of entreaty, and which he doubtless thought the most effectual method to win upon them and gain them, for some minds are more easily wrought upon by entreaty than by authority. Now that's just good management communication skill there, is it not? Entreaty rather than authority is the way to go if necessary. Now Paul, and that John Gill points out, of course, that Paul sometimes did use he laid commands on people heavily if they were screwing up, like at Corinth. He, he really let them have it. But typically, when you got a church that's doing well, like the Thessalonians, he doesn't do that. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, quote, He uses the strong term commandments in writing to this church not long founded, knowing that they would take it in a right spirit, and feeling it desirable that they should understand he spoke with divine authority. He seldom uses the term in writing subsequently, the term commandment, when his authority was established to other churches. Now you can look at other places where the subject accounts for the strong expression of the use of the, of the word commandment, such as in 1 Corinthians, of course. These are exceptions, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown. So the rule was Paul was very gentle. He came to the Galatians as a nursing mother. I think it was the Galatians. A nursing mother. He was gentle most of the time. The exceptions, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, are, the ex- are when Paul used the word command or instruct. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 6. Well, this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. If you ever wonder what God's will is for your life, well, here's something that you can't go wrong with. Your sanctification, your holiness, your separation from the world and consecration to God. That's what God's will is. 
Now, there are two types of sanctification. There's positional sanctification and progressive sanctification as the theologians term it. I think those are good terms. Hebrews 10.10 is the, the positional type of sanctification. That's the type of sanctification you get as soon as you're born again. Even if you're just a brand new baby Christian, you are positionally sanctified. You are set apart to God and separated from the world. Hebrews 10.10, by this, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. There's another verse I don't have. It says that sanctification by which no man can see God. That's talking about your positional sanctification. In other words, you've got to be justified. So sanctification starts at justification and then moves upward until glorification when we see God face to face and we receive our final body and our final glorified state. And between justification and glorification, we go up and down, up and down, but mostly up because the trend line is up, kind of like the stock market. It goes down like during the coronavirus disaster. Hopefully, it will come back up as it always has. It even came up after the Great Depression. Likewise, if we have a disaster, let's say that, for example, here somebody does not know how to control his own body in sanctification and honor and goes out and has sex with somebody, not his wife, well, that's a big dip in the market, big dip in your sanctification graph. But after you repent, make your restitution, make, make up for all the wrongs, you can get right back on the track, which is up, up, upwards and onwards till we see Jesus face to face. And we are like he is in the world. And we are holy and just and pure and without sin. Progressive sanctification is the normal type of sanctification that we think about. And these verses here in verses 3 through 6 give an example of progressive sanctification. For this is God's will, your sanctification, colon. And then he goes on and gives some examples of how you can be progressively sanctified. Mainly by avoiding sexual immorality. In fact, that's all he talks about in these three verses, or four verses, sexual immorality. Now, why did Paul emphasize sexual immorality? Because it was so prevalent, John Gill says. The Greek word is porneia, which, from which we get the word pornography. It means all kinds of sexual immorality, not just adultery. Now, you know, I, that translation of porneia, adultery, is a little bit confusing. I remember one time somebody had a, a, a blood sister whose husband was watching pornography, he was even watching pornography with the kids around. And she decides she wants a divorce. And I say, well, you know, but the Bible says divorce is only for cases of adultery, and he's not committing adultery. And I mentioned this to another mutual friend of ours, and he gave my friend the advice, well, pornea means any kinds of sexual immorality, not just adultery, and pornography is sexual immorality. She's got every right to divorce the guy. I hadn't thought about that. Well, that's what pornea means. So basically, and what is sexual immorality? It's any kind of sex. It's not sex with your own wife. Private sex with your own wife alone. If it's any other kind, it's perverted, sick, sicko, twisted sex. It ain't the way God meant for human beings to operate. Now, all these kinds of sexual immorality, here's what Adam Clark says about that. Quote, the Christian religion not only discountenances these things, but forbids them on the most awful penalties. Therefore, wherever Christianity prevails, these vices, if practiced at all, are obliged to seek the deepest gloom of midnight to cover them from the eyes of men. I remember in the, I read a commentator, I forgot which one, mid-19th century, was mentioned in homosexuality, but he wouldn't use the term. He said, such vices that cannot even be named among men. Well, now, in our enlightened 21st century, we've written it into our laws. Sodomy is now, quote-unquote, marriage, which is an absolute abomination, filth, judicial filth, moral filth, cultural filth. Oh, and I'm sure if somebody hears this, they're going to ban me from the Internet. 
And they're going to call me a homophobe because I hate homosexuals. Well, listen, I don't hate adulterers, but I don't approve of adultery. I don't hate animals, and I don't hate people who commit bestiality, but I sure as Gehenna hate bestiality. People, unfortunately, are not capable of making even the most elementary distinctions in this godless culture that we live in now in the 21st century. Now, Paul says in verse 4, he wants each of the Thessalonians to know how to control his own body. That's a straightforward thing if you interpret body as body. The King James, however, has vessel, and the Greek actually is vessel. So the question is, is vessel did in the Greek, does that mean body? Well, the commentators disagree over that. Here's some options. One could just take it as body, as John Gill says. Some people take it as one's wife. Possess your vessel and honor. That means have sex only with your wife and nobody else's vessel. Well, it's, it gives very similar similar meaning, similar results, even if not as exactly the same meaning. But now, here's a good quote from Adam Clark. I love this quote. There is a third sense which interpreters have put on the word which I forbear to name. Well, I think what Clark means is the male private parts, the male member, the male ding-dong. So what he's saying here is, if this view would be correct, is Thessalonians possess your penises in sanctification. <laughs> I don't know about that one. I think it's easier just to say to possess your own body to control yourself. And he says, and he says in verse 4, to control your body in sanctification and honor, which means that sure, the sex drive is strong, but it's God's will that you know how to control that because it leads to nothing but disaster if you don't. I, mean, I recall a story of a, this is when I was in college, uh, sort of a, he wasn't really in tight with our fellowship group, but he came several times, and so we, we knew him. And he had broken up with a, a girlfriend who was not a Christian, and he decided he wanted to witness to her. So he goes and sees her somewhere, and they end up in a hotel room, and, you know, one thing led to another. So he comes back all miserable and feeling sinful because he had had sex with his ex-girlfriend. Well, he needs to, he needed to, he did, he repented of it, but he was miserable, he didn't control himself. Folks, no girl is going to rape a guy. Now, he might try to seduce you. I remember one time when I was in college, this young woman who had draped herself. She was a Christian, but she was really screwed up. And she had draped herself all over my good friend and roommate. And he kind of said, ooh, and he kind of stayed away from her. Well, I went to church with her one time. And that girl had a fripping hand on my knee right during the church service. And I was a nerd, not very handsome, kind of skinny, kind of ugly. And I wasn't used to that sort of thing. But I resisted her. It can be done. I'm telling you, it can be done. It better be done. Now, how about women? Uh, do they need to control their own body? This is, I, I believe, that Paul is writing to the men, men here. He says, this, this means one must not transgress against and defraud his brother. Now, brother can mean brother or sister. The word is bisexual. It's, it's, it's ambiguous. But I think here he's talking about men, because men typically do this sort of thing. However, because men's desire for this is sort of glandular, not very emotional. But I did talk to a young woman who had lived a, shall we say, a checkered past and had rebelled against God very, very badly. I believe she was a Christian, but she was, oh man, she was influenced by some feminist friend who had been divorced four times. She wrecked her marriage. She wrecked her raising her daughter. I mean, she, her whole family life was a total and absolute disaster. And she told me that during that time that she lusted after men. And I thought, hmm, I never heard that before. 
I didn't think women did that kind of thing. I thought they were more interested in harlequin romances, you know. Moonlight, magnolias, chocolate, and that kind of stuff. And she was Chinese, so she was using her second language. So I said, well, I want to check. When you say lust, now what do you mean by that? And after I got her to define it, she meant have sex with. She, I said, you wanted to have sex with men. She said, absolutely. So I guess it's possible for women to do it. First time I ever met, met a woman, I'm sure it's possible. But it's not typical, I don't think. I don't care whether it's a man or it's a woman. Anybody can control those lustful desires if you have the Holy Spirit working in you. Now, if you don't, well, you probably can control it, but you probably don't want to, and it doesn't seem to happen very often. But if you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you can control this, and you can do it, and you must do it. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. You think you can have free sex? Uh-uh, sex ain't free. you either got to pay for it with a marriage license, or you got to pay for it with the avenging wrath of God on your head. Sooner or later, you're going to pay. It might be with a physical disease. It might be with a broken heart. I don't know. It might be with guilt that followed you for the rest of your life. Watch movies. You know, all these movies, nobody gets away. There ain't no such thing as free sex. Morality is deeply entwined in sex. I remember watching, uh, and I didn't watch it because it was so disgusting, but I was was considering watching this movie about college kids because I was a college professor. It was a lifetime movie. And these kids were at a beer party, and they were talking about all their sexual sins, and it was disgusting. I said, you know what? These these college kids are not acting like human beings. They're acting like animals, and that's what happens. You keep defrauding yourself and defrauding your friends with your sexuality. You are sinking to the level of an animal because God did not mean for us to behave that way. He is an avenger of all these offenses. All right, in verse 6, he says, Paul says, do not, one must not transgress against and defraud his brother in this matter. He's talking about having sex with some other man's wife. That's serious business. People shoot each other for that. We go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, and 8. For God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification. There's that word again, sanctification. You want to know what his will is? He wants you to be sanctified. What has he called you to? He's called you to sanctification, to be holy. Therefore, to be like Jesus. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also gives you his Holy Spirit. Rejects what? Rejects Paul's admonition against sexual immorality. The person who rejects prohibitions on sexual immorality is one who embraces sexual immorality, and when he does that, he's not rejecting man. In other words, he's not rejecting the apostles' command not to do it. He's rejecting God. Why? Because the apostles' words are God's words. You can't separate them out like liberals love to do. Oh, that's just Paul's opinion. We can do whatever we want because Jesus didn't talk about it. Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. Paul did, but he's just an apostle. We don't need to obey him. That is baloney sausage. B.S. You reject the apostle Paul. You reject Jesus who sent the apostle Paul. So the person who rejects these strictures on sexual Morality does not reject man, doesn't reject Paul the Apostle, rejects God, who also gives you his Holy Spirit. And the reason Paul mentions Holy Spirit right there, because to show the incredible contrast between a Holy Spirit that you have between the impurity of your sexual immorality. Sexual morality and the Holy sexual morality and the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. And just look around you today. There's a lot of Christians who've been affected by the spirit of the world, but typically Christians are the only people, maybe there's some Jews, maybe, but typically in modern Western society, it's only Christians who maintain virginity before marriage. Every now and then the press will do stories on these people, like A.C. Green used to play for the Lakers. He was single at the time, he was, and he it somehow got out that he was a virgin, and everybody writes stories about that. Hey, A.C. Green's a virgin, isn't that amazing? 
You know, it's a man-bites-dog story. This is weird. A virgin. Grey's Anatomy had a virgin in the cast, and they all, they sort of respected her virginity, but they still thought that she was sort of weird. That's because the world cannot control their bodily lust. They're looking for something. They think they're going to find it in all the wrong places. So if you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, it makes absolutely no sense for someone with the Holy Spirit living in them to live in an unholy manner. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Oh, by the way, when I said in verse 8 that the person who rejects this does not reject man, i.e. the apostle who's preaching against sexual immorality, it could mean, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, that the man who is rejected is the defrauded man, the man who had his wife slept with. Therefore, the person who rejects this and goes ahead and has sex with another woman who's not his wife does not only reject the defrauded man, the man who's the, the husband of the wife you committed adultery with, but you reject God. I think that's a stretch. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's talking about the apostles who are preaching against that sort of unholy behavior. First Thessalonians 4, nine about brotherly love. Again, we're still continuing with the idea of progressive sanctification. How do we get more and more sanctified, consecrated to God, and separated from the world? Brotherly love. You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. How are the Thessalonians taught by God to love one another? Here's some options. Grant the commentator, implantation of the divine nature will teach you to love one another. Gill says the law of nature tells you that. Now, I've got my questions about that. I guess it's true because you, you find natural family love amongst people who aren't Christians. So I guess you could say that, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. The law of Moses, well, yes, in Leviticus, what is it? I forgot the verse, Leviticus 19, I think it is. Somewhere in Leviticus it talks about love, God, and loving your neighbor. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Talking about the gospel, John Gill says, I think that's what it is. You don't need to write me because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I mean, everything Jesus said is talking about love one another. The example of the ministry of Christ Gill suggests the Holy Spirit working internally. Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest lots of things teach the Thessalonians that they're supposed to love one another. That's not controversial. In fact, Paul himself told them the same thing in the previous chapter in the same letter, 1 Thessalonians 3.12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. And, of course, the immediate reference of these acts of brotherly kindness is relieving distressed brethren who are in need, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Now, when Paul says, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, John Gill says, apparently there was no instance of brothers not loving each other at Thessalonica. I think of Eudoia, Eudoia and Syntyche, and where was that? Philippi, I think it was Philippi. I urge Eudoia and Syntyche to get along, Eudoia and Syntyche to get along with one another. He didn't have an example like that to use in Thessalonica because apparently they loved one another already. Again, he's not he's not really rebuking the Thessalonians. He's just telling them to do more. I've already done good. Let's do some more. First Thessalonians 4.10. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers, is what I just said, in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you brothers to do so even more. Up your game. You've already reached one level. Don't quit. Progressive sanctification keeps right on going until the day we are glorified. We don't need to condemn ourselves because we're not glorified yet anymore. We condemn a baby because he ain't grown up yet. We don't need to condemn ourselves, but we need to constantly try to be more and more holy as we strive towards that final goal of union with Christ face-to-face and glorification. Now, how are the Thessalonians already doing this toward their brothers? I just mentioned that it was talking about financial, relieving their financial distress, probably giving them money, 
could have been assisting them in distress other ways, maybe giving them lodging, giving them shelter, I don't know, sympathizing with people that were being persecuted, giving people advice and counsel, stirring them up to love and good works. Whatever it was, they were doing it in the entire region of Macedonia, not just in Thessalonica, but all around. Macedonia included Berea, Philippi, and other churches we don't know about. First Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. It's the middle of a sentence, so I need to get the beginning of the sentence in verse 10. But we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. Now, verse 11, to seek to lead a quiet life. We encourage you, brothers, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, to me, that is a strange exhortation to lead a quiet life, to think that our personal sanctification can be tied up with leading a quiet life where you're not an offense to your neighbors, you don't get in trouble all the time, you're not screaming and hollering on social media, you're not marching up and down the street with a sign to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. In other words, quit telling other people how to run their Christian lives. <laughs> That's a good exhortation, is it not? To work with your own hands. The Thessalonians, of course, some of them thought well, they're saved. Now they don't need to work because the kingdom of God was upon them and the kingdom of God would not have something so unpleasant as work in it. Paul says, as we commanded you... Notice that Paul's tone is more authoritative when he comes to dealing with problems, and it seems that not working was one of the few problems the Thessalonians had, as Adam Clark said. So that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders. How do you walk properly in the presence of outsiders? By working with your hands. In other words, by not being a lazy bum. Nobody likes that, because everybody has to work, and you sitting there working, and you watching somebody sitting back. Not working is it's disgusting. Outsiders are going to look at Christians and say, look at these lazy bum Christians. So work. Notice Paul was not afraid of working with his own hands. He worked with his own hands himself. He was a tent maker. He wasn't afraid of hard work. He worked like a dog when you consider when you look at all the stuff he accomplished. He didn't mind working. And notice he says that you work with your hands so that you may not be dependent on anyone. Of course, back then, you working with your hands, that's kind of what most people did. Today, we don't work with our hands so much, but we still need to work. Notice that the results of working with your own, hand, own hands are two, twofold. One is you walk properly in the presence of outsiders. Outsiders won't condemn you and judge you. You won't cause outsiders to stumble. And the second thing that happens when you work with your own hands is you're not dependent on anyone. In other words, you're financially independent. Now, we don't often think about how Paul has exhorted Christians to be financially independent, but he just did right here. Financial independence is a great thing. Every Christian should diligently pray for that, that they are not worried about where their next meal comes from because they know their father's going to take care of them. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Freedom from pecuniary embarrassment is to be desired by the Christian on account of the liberty which it bestows. And that is absolute gospel truth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have finished 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, where Paul talks about how to get sanctified being sexually moral and financially independent and loving one's brother. We're going to start now with the eschatological parts of 1 Thessalonians in the next audio. I say now, I mean in the next audio in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. We'll take up some eschatology. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.